a rice wine called Ara, red rice, and the kingdom's first ever winery. This week, we're in Bhutan. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is the podcast where we visit places all over the world and sample the cuisine that makes it great. And this week, we're in the kingdom of Bhutan, a place nestled in the Himalayas between India and Tibet. Now, you might be like me and think that Bhutan is a rugged, mountainous region filled with snow-capped Himalayan peaks and That's certainly part of Bhutan, but the country also has a subtropical forested region in the south where citrus thrives. And my guest today is Michael Juergens. Mike is a senior partner at a global consulting firm, a wine lover and a sommelier, and he's also an author. In fact, he's written Drinking and Knowing Things a book of wine recommendations not for the faint of heart. During his free time, Mike likes to travel and run marathons, which is how he ended up in Bhutan. A couple of years later, he was planting vines in a country with no history of viticulture whatsoever. Mike tells me about this amazing story of taking an idea and creating a whole new industry in Bhutan how the vineyards are doing, his setbacks during COVID. Plus, we talk about some of his favorite dishes in Bhutan, like momos and the indigenous red rice. And Mike also mentions a dish made with cheese and chilies. It's called emma dachi, which sounds delicious. And he tells me what happens when everyone brings their own homemade rice wine to a dinner party. I've got links to Mike's book, his winery website, the Bhutan Wine Company, and social media in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED150. And if you like the show, share it with your friends, or you can leave a review, which is always appreciated, or just drop a link to the show in your social media. That'd be great. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Michael, great to have you on Destination Eat Drink. This is a topic I've been wanting to tackle for a while now, and I didn't know who to talk to about the kingdom of Bhutan. And then I found out about you and your cool Bhutan wine company. I think the place where we should probably start is the beginning for you. How did you decide on Bhutan? What was your first trip to Bhutan like? And what made you think this would be a great place for a winery? So my girlfriend, um, who I've been with for 15 years, she read a book in high school about a woman who moved to the kingdom of Bhutan and married a Bhutanese man and stayed there. And so she always had this uh, desire to go to Bhutan. So the whole time we've been together, I've been hearing about Bhutan, 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 (laughs) Bhutan this, Bhutan that. And I, I I didn't know what a Bhutan was. I was like, yeah, whatever. In the meantime, we were busy running marathons in weird places around the world. And I ended up on some mailing list where an email list where I got this email that said Bhutan Marathon in the subject line. And I clicked on it. And it was like, we're doing this first group of, um, you know, foreigners are going to go run this marathon. Do you want to go? And I, you know, we're, we're taking 10 people, you know, click here if you're interested. And so I sprained my thumb, you know, immediately <laughs> right. responding. 
um, just because I wanted to surprise my girlfriend. I, I didn't know what Bhutan was. And frankly, I thought it was an island in Indonesia. <laughs> okay. And so, so uh, we get accepted. And, and I get to tell my girlfriend, hey, surprise, honey, I love you. We're, you know, we're going to the to Bhutan. And she said, oh, I can't wait. I've always wanted to go to the Himalayas. And I said, <laughs> you mean it's not a tropical paradise? <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, wait, where is it? And, uh, and so that's how I learned that it was actually between Tibet and Nepal and not a, a tropical paradise. Yeah. Um, which also changes the dynamics of running a marathon in a place like that. So I was going to say, if you thought it was a tropical paradise and you wind up at, I don't know, 20,000 feet, uh, that takes on a whole different light of how you're going to run the marathon. But you were prepared for this. Uh, how did you do? I can't imagine walking around at that altitude. What was it like running for 26.2? So the um, Bhutan, is, it's about the size of Switzerland, and, but it's pasted on the side, the side of the Himalayas. So at the southern end of the country, it's about 500 feet in elevation. And then in the northern part where the highest piece is like 27,000 feet. So you kind of have all different altitude ranges within that. The Where we ran the marathon, it started at about, um, I think, 7,500 feet, and it went down to about 6,000 feet. So it was um, annoying, but it wasn't like life-threatening, you know, 20,000 feet altitude sickness sort, sort of thing. Um, you know, I had run some marathons and some other challenging environments. And so it was challenging, but it wasn't, you know, the end of the world. So how did you do in the marathon? I finished. <laughs> you, you also have to understand, you know, I like running marathons. Uh, I am not necessarily good at running marathons. I think that particular uh, marathon I ran it in six hours and change or something. But the other thing is, we're running through all this beautiful countryside. Like we were stopping to talk to the locals. We were taking pictures of the, the yaks and the monkeys and, oh, cool. um, you know, slapping hands with the little kids on the trails and stuff. So we, we weren't running it for, for time. We were running it for, for fun. Yeah. And that's the perfect answer. I finished it. Um, so at what point did you think to yourself, this would be the perfect place to start to plant a vineyard? Because, my understanding is this is the first vineyard ever in Bhutan. There is no history of grape growing, and they don't currently have any wine production there. That's correct. Well, they do produce, they do import a little bit of bulk wine and bottle it and sell it in the country, but they don't produce any of their own wine. And and so me being a master wine candidate, I, I had been traveling all over the world to many different global wine regions and, and studying this in depth for years. And so when we got there and we're driving through the countryside, and then particularly when we were running the marathon through these terrace slopes, I kept like looking, going, where are the grapes? Where are the grapes? I want to see the grapes. And everywhere I, we went, I would ask people and they would just kind of looked at me blankly, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so we ended up at, at this dinner with a bunch of government officials um, and I asked them and they said, we don't have any. And I said, well, why not? Like you have this perfect, amazing terroir. Why are you not doing this? This could be globally relevant. And, and they said, well, why do you think so? And I said, well, here's why you have this soil, you have this climate, you got this, you know, pure microplastic free water. You have this incredible, you know, vigor and vitality in the soil. You grow these amazing crops in other verticals. Like, why would you not also grow wine grapes? <laughs> and that's kind of how the conversation started. I didn't have any 
desire to start a winery there. I, I thought it would be cool if they did it. You were just asking the question. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, hey, you guys have this perfect space. You should do something with it. And they said, well, you know, how, how might we do it? So I, I wrote a white paper that kind of outlined my thinking on why it would be a good spot for wine grapes. And I emailed it to the folks in Bhutan and I didn't hear anything back. And about, which was fine. I was like, well, hopefully they're doing something with it. So about two years later, I went back to Bhutan because I had such an amazing experience the first time I went. Um, I wanted to go run the marathon again. And so when I went back there, all these government people wanted to meet with me. And they were like, hey, uh, were you the guy that wrote the wine paper? Turns out everybody had read it. <laughs> and so Got this thing passed around. Yeah, I, I barely got around. I mean, Bhutan is a small country, so... Um, anyway, so I, I met with them and I said, here, here's what I think you guys could do. And, and here's how I think you should do it. And they said, thank you. Um, and I went home and I wrote up a 10 year business plan for them and drafted maybe what I thought could be the initial wine regulations for the company or the, the country. And I sent it all to them. And I said, you know, do this. This is how you would do this. This is how you as a country would get into this wine game. And uh, here's all the things you need to consider. And here's the specific steps you would need to take. And they said, we totally want to do this. And uh, I said, you should totally do it. (laughs) (laughs) You you still have no idea that you're going to be the guy. (laughs) I had no idea. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, well, we need a partner. And I was like, yeah, you should get a knowledgeable partner. (laughs) We want to do it with you. And I kind of took, you know, put me back on my heels a little bit. I was like, wow, uh, I wasn't really contemplating this. It's, I live in California. (laughs) This isn't the easiest thing for me. Um, But when I really sat back and thought about it, I believe that Bhutan is the last country on the planet that has the organic potential to grow amazing wine grapes. That's not already doing it. You know, everywhere else that can do it has been doing it for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And these guys, because they were isolated, they just never no, Marco Polo never brought grapes into Bhutan. The Romans never invaded Bhutan and brought grapes to them. It's, so it's just sitting there. You mentioned the terroir, Michael, and I wanted to ask you about that specifically because when I think of Bhutan, I immediately think of the Himalayas. I think of steep you know, passages and an unforgiving climate. Why am I wrong about thinking that way? And what makes the terroir so good for growing grapes? Well, so the steep slopes, you're not you're not super wrong about. I don't know if you can see the background on my screen here. This is actually our yes, Yusupong yes. Vineyard. Yeah, that's the Yusupong Vineyard. And it, this one's at about 9,000 feet in elevation. And it's it's there's a lot of steep slopes in there. Uh, but steep slopes are good for grapes. You know, the Mosul in Germany grows amazing Riesling. And some of those slopes are up to 60 degrees, you know, steep. They look like cliffs. Portugal and the, the Duro Valley. Yes. You know, there's you can just, you know, even in Napa on the mountain slopes on the Maya commas, um, you know, they get pretty steep, too. So steep slopes are good for for wine grapes in a lot of ways. Um, There are there certainly are some cooler, more to your point, unforgiving spots within Bhutan. That's kind of the northern side of the country. Most of their current agricultural production is either in the south where it's tropical and they grow a lot of like citrus fruit and, and so on and so forth. Hmm. And then in the middle of the country where they grow a lot of vegetables and, and cereal grains. And some of these are the best in the world. I mean, Bhutan makes the best red rice in the world. They make the best cardamom in the world. 
And and so for me, it was like I'm looking at this going, wow, look at these mandarin oranges. These are amazing. And I was eating them going, these are spectacular. Uh, if I can grow an orange, I sure as hell can grow a wine grape. <laughs> right, right. So how did you decide what grape varietals you were going to plant? Well, so I, I thought about it in two ways. So one way of thinking about it is, you know, what what historically grows well there? <laughs> we don't have any of that data. So <laughs> no that information. Yeah, zero. Uh, the, se- the second thing would be, let's do some detailed soil analysis and climate analysis mm-hmm. and try to, to nail in on exactly scientifically which one is the best. However we don't have a lot of data because they don't have weather stations out in the middle of places like you, you see on my background. But I didn't have that either. And so then there's the, what can I sell? And, and if um, and I think there's a lot of curiosity about Bhutan, um, certainly within the fine wine industry, the average Joe consumer doesn't probably know what Bhutan is. Thinks, probably thinks it's an island in Indonesia. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, if you were to sell like a Chocolina from, from Bhutan, that's pretty weird. But a Cabernet, like a, if you have a curious Cabernet drinker, they would look at it and go, oh, Cabernet, oh, Bhutan, that sounds interesting. I'll try that. So we ended up picking eight international varietals, which were um, on the reds. It was Pinot Noir, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, Malbec, uh, Syrah. And then on the whites, we did Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay. And then I also picked Petite Mansang and Petite Mansang is, is very rain tolerant and Bhutan gets some monsoon pressure in the summer. So that was sort of my edge. Um, the last round of vineyards we just planted uh, last month, I added in Riesling because of the, the climate. Um, I added Tempranillo, Sangiovese and I added Chenin Blanc. So we've got 13 different things growing there. I don't anticipate that all of those are going to work and that's fine. I just need to find, you know, the two or three that work the best in these certain spots. So you're experimenting right now, trying to figure out what works best. Now, when did you plant these vines and how did you get them to Bhutan? Because they have no wine (laughs) growing history. So you can't just call the local uh, nursery down there and say, send me 3000 rootstock. Correct. And by the way, when you email nurseries and you say, hey, I'd like to order some vines. Can you ship them to the kingdom of Bhutan? <laughs> Most people think that's a scam. Like you're They're the like, Nigerian are, Yeah, prince. are you a Nigerian prince? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so finally I got in my car and I, I live in California, right? So I, I got my car and I mm. drove up to one of the largest nurseries in the U.S. And I sat down with them and I said, guys, please take me seriously. This is what I'm trying to do. And once they kind of met me and talked to me and saw what we were trying to do. Then they got on board. Getting the vines to Bhutan was a challenge. Um, first off, the, the government, you know, we have a, a country that is carbon negative and is on track to be the first country in the world to be 100% organic for all crops. So as you can imagine, they're very um, protective of their of their agricultural environment and, and the that whole um market space. And so I had to make sure that we weren't bringing in anything with diseases or viruses or, or whatever. And we wanted to do some, some very controlled experiments. So I had to work a lot with them to figure out how we were going to do it. Once we, once we got there, once we decided on that, then I had to ship the vines there. This particular time I shipped them by, by airplane, which was not, not inexpensive. Sure. Um, 
and uh and but we were able to get him there and and then you know i went there with with the team of folks and then Bhutan has incredibly skilled agriculturalists um they just have never planted wine grapes before so me and my team went there and trained trained them how to do it and, and sort of worked with them in the fields to get the first batch planted this was this this season that we're in right now, this will be the fourth growing season for those six vineyards. And then I just planted another two vineyards. Uh, we finished planting them last month. This had a whole different set of challenges because of the COVID um, situation. Right. And more importantly, the COVID situation in India. So Bhutan had their borders closed. I had to ship grapes because I was shipping so many of them. I had to ship them to Kolkata and then truck them up into Bhutan and that created a whole bunch of logistical challenges and it's been a, it's been a hell of a month. Let me just put it that way. But, <laughs> but um, you know, one of the vineyards we cleared, we had to pull 400 truckloads of rocks out of it. Just, wow. stuff we hadn't anticipated, but uh, yeah, we, we got um, these last two vineyards planted. Actually, I was looking at pictures from this morning and the shoots are already probably 12 inches high um, and in 10 days. So it just, Bhutan has this vitality of it that I, there's no way the grapes are not going to grow. The question is, are they going to make good wine? You said this is your fourth growing season. So the grapes have probably started, the vines have probably started to produce at this point. Usually it takes a little while. Um, How are those first wine, how are those first vines doing as far as grape production goes? What's the quality? What's the quantity? What have you liked? What have you been not so sure about? So the, so our initial round of planting, we planted six vineyards. We, we got fruit last year on two of them. Um, so this was, you know, last August, this was smack in the middle of the pandemic mm-hmm. and Bhutan had gone to complete and total um, closure of the borders. You know, their, their healthcare system is, is not as, as mature as other countries. And so they were very careful to make sure that it didn't, didn't get out of control within the country and it was the right move, but I couldn't get there. Um, and the folks there on the ground, they don't know how to measure the quality of wine grapes because they never done it before. So last year we, we let the crops in those two vineyards fall oh. this year. Um, we're, we're absolutely getting fruit in those same two vineyards. And we're starting to see a little bit in a, in a, a couple of the other ones. Some of the vineyards are at, in more challenging sites. And I think it's going to take, I, I don't think we'll get fruit from them until next year, which is actually a good thing from my perspective, because I know these grapes are really struggling. And when you have vines that struggle, you usually get mm-hmm. grapes that make amazing wine. Yes, so yes. Um, actually one of the vineyards, <laughs> it, the, the vines are growing so fast that it's almost too vigorous. So we last year we planted watermelons between the rows to try to suck. <laughs> Suck some of the vigor out of the soil to to slow the grape growth down a little bit. So we're thinking maybe uh, 2023 or 2024, you might have your first, uh, you might have your first bottling available. Is is that kind of what your mindset is? Yeah. So our plan this year is to do some micro vinification trials. And then in 2022, do like our first commercial, um, you know, production run. Then the whites will probably age for let's say six to 10 months. And then the reds for 12 to 24, you know, depending on what the, how, how the wine comes out. So my guess is we'll have the first 
bottles available for purchase in 2023. And who's going to be your market? Are you going to be focusing on the Bhutan local market? I can't imagine it's big enough uh, to be able to support a, a winery like yours, or is it going to be international? It's 100% export. And we actually have, our business model has two, two tranches. So one tranche is what we're, we call our terroir wines. Um, those wines are going to be, you know, handcrafted, you know, single vineyard, high quality that we'll export to, to US, UK, Japan, and China, probably initially. And I, I through my, my, you know, day job, um, I have a lot of those connections already. And there's, I already have like a, a waiting list of people waiting to get some. Uh, matter of fact, I, we, we spoke to a company that wants to be our, our uh, pretty large company that wants to have a, an exclusive for Japan. Um, and I'm sort of like, we don't, have, we don't have wine yet. <laughs> so <laughs> what are you let's, buying? Let's, start, yeah. I mean, let's, let's wait and see what happens before we start signing exclusive contracts. So, so that's the tranche one. And then uh, our tranche two is what we're calling kind of our bulk wine. And Bhutan is the only country in the world with a free trade agreement with India as it relates to alcohol. So every other country in the world has to pay hundred percent tax and hundred percent tariff for, for wines that are sold, uh, imported into India and sold in India. Bhutan doesn't have that. So we're going to make, um, but, but the economics in, in India, you know, people are not buying $200 bottles of wine. They're buying $30 bottles of wine. So we're going to make a lower range product um, at higher volumes that we'll sell into India. And it'll probably be a separate brand, actually. So we've got this two-pronged approach, one to India to take advantage of the, the tariff savings, and then one that's going to be more terroir-focused for um, for the rest of the world. That's a huge advantage for you going into India, especially with an expanding economy, a, a larger, a growing middle class where they'll be able to drink more wine. Does India have wine production at all? Maybe they do in some of the foothills up there. I've had Indian beer. I've never had Indian wine. They, they do actually. And it's um, the demand to your point, you know, you have this burgeoning middle class that wants to adopt, you know, more Western lifestyles and wine is certainly one of them. There's a guy who, who was a senior executive at Oracle who was Indian and he, he went over there and he, I think, I think the name of the company is Sela maybe or something like that. They've got about 2000 acres under vine um, and they're producing a, a boatload of wine uh, but the reason you don't see it is because it's all sold in country. Why would you export it when you have this huge cost advantage, you know, internally and um, unmet demand? And a billion so, people. <laughs> you got a you got a billion thirsty Indians, yeah, and uh, and 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 you have a some some huge barriers to entry for for competitors coming in from outside the country. Well, I'm really looking forward to 2023 when I can uh, when I can taste this wine. Um, are are you planning on going back? Are you going to be able to go back anytime in the near future with uh, COVID going on? What's uh, what's your plan? I'm sure you're itching to uh, get your hands on those grapes and do a little spectrum analysis and see how much sugar you've got and do all that fun stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. So ordinarily, I'm there maybe three or four times a year. Uh, so Bhutan is open now, but there's a 21-day quarantine process. Mm. And so, you know, I don't really have 21 days to sit around waiting to then do another couple of weeks of work. Um, but uh, Bhutan just literally this week got their second um, round. They, they vaccinated everybody in the country uh, in two weeks, but they only had enough to do one shot per person. They just got their second round of shots 
this week. I think they'll probably be done with those vaccinations within a week or two. And my guess is, is that once that seasons, then the, the quarantine will reduce. I don't know that it will go to zero, but if, even if it was seven days, it's manageable for me. So I'm monitoring the situation pretty closely with my partners there to, to see, you know, the second they, they, they reduce that quarantine, I'm on a plane. You're like, you me. you're there. itching to go, man. <laughs> itching, itching I'm, to get itching, on the plane. I'm itching to go. Yep. Yeah. You got I, it. I've done a couple of domestic plane flights, but I'm waiting for that big international trip coming up this fall. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Bhutanese cuisine because you've made several trips over there. And as I was preparing for our conversation, I was reading up a little on Bhutanese cuisine. And one thing struck me that I found a little surprising, I guess, is that they use a lot of chilies in their cooking, particularly hot chilies. Uh, Was that your experience, MJ? (laughs) (laughs) Fire in the the hole. The food there can get a little hot sometimes. So, let, let me break um, the Bhutanese cuisine down into sort of two sections. There's, let's call it meat and everything that's not. Okay. So um, Bhutan's a Buddhist country. And so they they won't kill anything, but they will eat meat. Um, uh, many of the folks there are not vegetarian, but you can't kill anything in the country. So they import all of their meat. And, you know, importing meat does not bode for high quality meat. <laughs> right. Um, so, so the meat products there tend to be eh, sort of blah at best. The non-meat stuff, which is kind of cereal grains, fruits and vegetables, it's all the stuff that they grow in country. So you're talking, I mean, talk about your farm to table. I mean, this is literally farm to table and it's some of the best stuff in the world. The vegetables there are ridiculously just amazing. Um, and, and so there's a lot of different vegetable-based dishes um, and grain-based dishes and they do enjoy their spice it is more they have this local pepper that's this green pepper and it's extremely spicy but not in a um it's not like an indian spice it's more like a thai spice and one of their one of their um main dishes is peppers and cheese so i'll tell you here's a story (laughs) i uh um, first time I was there, I, we were having dinner with the marathoners and they were clearly serving us food that they thought would appeal to a Western palate. And I, you know, <laughs> like, Hey, I'm in Bhutan. I, you know, I, I want to live like the Bhutanese. Give me the local <laughs> stuff. Me a, yeah. Give me some local stuff. And the, and the, the chef was like, are you sure you want that? And I'm like, <laughs> I absolutely want that. And, uh, and so he made me the peppers and cheese dish and we brought it out and I'm, I'm eating it. And it's like, these peppers were so amazingly flavorful. I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. And I'm throwing them in my mouth and just eating them whole. And uh, <laughs> one of the Bhutanese guys was like, uh, dude, you, you might want to watch yourself with that. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? This is so good. And then about 90 seconds in, it hit me like a, like a freight train. <laughs> I ended up having to lay down on the floor. Oh and- my God. <laughs> <laughs> so... There you um, go. Delayed reaction, right? Yeah. Oh it's my like God. Lesson learned. But but does, you know, since then I I I really, really love the the food there. The mo they make this thing called a momo there, which is like a kind of like a pot sticker, like a steamed dumpling that then they dip, put different stuff inside of it. They put meat and vegetables and they serve them with sp- sauce that's pretty spicy, but you can sort of moderate how much you put on it. And uh, you know, every time we get to Bhutan, I'm like, okay, let's go for momos first yep. thing. Yep. 
You mentioned, Mike, the uh, red, the red rice, and I read about this. They they say it's so delicious because of the mineral rich glacial water that it grows in and makes it super tasty and super healthy. What what was your take on the red rice when you were there? How often do you wax poetic about rice? Right, right? rice is that sort of filler stuff that's underneath sushi, and you know my opinion. But the red rice there, it's a it's red, which is kind of trippy. And, and B, it is just enormously flavorful. It, um, you know, like a little spoonful of it and your, your, your mouth is just bursting with flavor. I, and this is one of the reasons why I think the wine grapes are going to grow there. You have this really unique terroir. You have this really iron rich and, and mineral rich soil, and you have this microplastic free Himalayan runoff water. And it just creates this environment where you can grow awesome stuff. And that red rice is, is no different. Matter of fact, Usually when we go, I typically will bring a suitcase back with um, with red rice, with some peppers, with some spices, some peppercorns. They have this awesome um, uh, like two-story uh, farmer's market in downtown Timpu that there's just stall after stall after stall of, of wow. all different crazy uh, vegetables and spices. And, you know, my girlfriend goes crazy for that stuff. And so, you know, we're, uh, we're always coming back with it. You and me, we're on the same page. I, I always bring an extra bag because I know I'm going to load it up with uh, whatever the local food that I'm going to bring back with me, um, which brings up the question, ever ever had an issue at customs, ever got stopped at, custom, at customs in the U.S. because of uh, what you had in your bag, any kind of food or anything? I've never had a problem going in. We did have a problem once in New Zealand. My girlfriend had like a handbag she used it for grocery shopping. So there was the smell of food in it. And in New Zealand, they are so strict about what you can bring in or what you can't because it's an isolated island. They're very subject to diseases and fungus and whatnot. And this dog just came right up and started walking next to her. And she's like, oh, what a cute dog. The dog had sniffed her bag and was like, yeah, <laughs> you're busted lady. Of course, there was nothing in her bag. But how about you? Any anything on at the I, I have I have never been busted. Um, now, <laughs> now, now I'm a little more aware. Of. <laughs> uh, but you know, the, the one thing about it is, is, is it's it's not necessarily the fastest flight in the world to get home from Bhutan. So typically, we're not bringing anything fresh back. It's yes. more like spices and, and right. rice and, and dried peppers. So I'm not sure if that's the kind of stuff that I'm supposed to be reporting yeah um, usually not, with but. yeah usually with customs if it's dried if it's in a sealed container you can you're pretty much good to go uh, like you said they're mostly concerned about the fresh you did say one thing that you bring back that sparked my interest which was peppercorns what are the peppercorns like are they different than the standard peppercorns we get at the grocery store what, what do we look for when yeah, we see like, Bhutanese peppercorns there I, I don't I've never seen the actual peppercorns um, here in the, in the U S like I've never gone to like whole foods and here's Bhutanese peppercorns, but they have these peppercorns that the ones that we typically get are they're this like scarlet red. And they're, mm. they're about the size of like, um, they're not quite the size of a pea, but they're big. Okay. And, and they're, they're really ridiculously flavorful. It's one of those things where you're in the country and you're going to these Bhutanese restaurants and you're eating the Bhutanese food and you're always like, what's this? And they're like, oh, it's X, Y, and Z. And then we end up you know, writing it down and then we're at the farmer's market going, hey, do you have blah, blah, blah? And they're like, oh yeah, it's down there. And uh, so then you go and you grab something. And I think that's how we stumbled on the peppercorns is because um, they were in some dish and we asked about them. 
What about drinks? What what were you drinking when you were there? You weren't drinking wine, that's for sure. But uh, what kind of stuff were you drinking? I imagine there's probably a lot of tea. Uh, what other kinds of things? So um, there's a couple of, of drinks that are uniquely Bhutanese. So one is every single family makes their own rice wine. Perfect. And they all make it with their own recipes. And there's you know, fiercely guarded recipes and, and a great amount of pride that, you know, my family's stuff is better than your family's stuff. Love it. I'll tell you a story. One, one of the first times I was there, we ended up having dinner at this um, kind of Bhutanese doctor's house. And he brought some friends who were in the government and it was kind of stiff and formal at first. And, and finally I, I said, Hey, I've heard about this ara, this rice wine. Um, do you guys do this? And the, our host said, Oh yes. Would you like to try some? And I said, yes, very much. And so he runs in the other room and he comes back in with this, like this wooden flask and he starts pouring this rice wine into bowls. The second he does that, every other Bhutanese person that was there, like started reaching in their robes and pulling out their wooden flask. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't drink his stuff. My stuff is better. And then we ended up having this, like this really fun party where we're trying everybody's stuff. Um, and sometimes they they filter it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they put egg in it, and they so you get like little pieces of egg floating in it. So really broad range of styles of this Ara rice wine, and it's 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 pretty fun. So that's the first thing that's pretty uniquely Bhutanese. The second thing that's pretty uniquely Bhutanese is the butter tea. So they make tea and they put like yak butter in it, um, it which is they also do in Tibet and Nepal, and that's actually what started the bulletproof. Um, coffee f- trend in the U.S. Right, right. But they uh, they do it, you know, all over the place in, in Bhutan. I think it's awesome. My girlfriend is not a super big fan of it. <laughs> um, I think it's great. Um, so those are the, the two kind of drinks that I think are uniquely Bhutanese. And then, of course, they do. You know, they have juices and colas and stuff like that. Perfect. The other thing that's interesting, and this is an alcohol play, they they set up this entity that they granted a spirit, the only spirits license in the country is granted to this, it's a quasi government agency. And the proceeds from the sales of spirits go to fund the King's Guard and the pension for the King's Guard. Cool. And what they do is they import scotch and cask uh, from Scotland, and then they, they proof it down with pure Himalayan water. And then they sell it. It's kind of this blend of scotch and Himalayan water, and they make uh, some lower end stuff. They make a twelve year old, and they they just started making an eighteen year old. The greatest scotch and water you'd ever have, you know. The greatest scotch and water you've ever had. Yeah, exactly. And it's cheap. Like the bottle. Uh, every time I go there, the bottles of the twelve year old sell for like ten bucks US. And that's another thing I'm stuffing in my suitcase when I get back. <laughs> you know, bringing home ten dollar twelve year old Bhutanese scotch. Oh, beautiful! And and they slap a label on it, so it's got the Bhutanese label on it too. It must look. Great. Oh yeah, yeah. And it actually comes in a, the twelve year old comes in like this really neat little green gift box. It's called K five. Yeah, it's cool, and I, it's it's also a great gift to give to people. Uh, I love showing up, you know, and giving one of my buddies who's a scotch, you know, fanatic, a, a bottle of. K5 Bhutanese scotch and just watch them going, what the hell? That sounds awesome. I would, I would, I would go, I think I would go to Bhutan just to get a bottle of Bhutanese scotch, scotch and water. I will tell you, um, you know, certainly you're a guy who's a, is a foodie and a, a traveler. I would tell you if Bhutan's not on your bucket list as a place to go, it, it should be. It's really just a amazing, spectacular country that I, I think 
everyone that I know that's gone there has said it's been life changing. So, well, one last question then on that topic, which is how would Americans get there? Um, your first time, did you have to get a visa in order to travel to Bhutan? Was it a difficult bureaucratic experience? Was it easy? Was it expensive? So Bhutan um, definitely manages the numbers of tourists that come into the country. Uh, they don't want to be overrun. And so they they are they limit the number of visas available every year. In order to go there as a tourist, you would need to contract with a Bhutanese travel agency and work with a, a uh, them to to get a visa, and then you also have to have a guide when you're in the country, so that you can't just wander around real willy nilly. I would say it's not that hard to do um, logistically, but it is expensive, and so it, there's a it's about a two hundred fifty dollar a day tourist tax just to be mm-hmm. in the country, right? And then obviously you've got to get there, which is right. not the easiest uh, thing in the world. There's one airport, and it's um, it's it's an airport that is the runway is shorter than the the level of elevation that it's at. <laughs> so you <laughs> you kind of fly these little jets in there and you shoot down this valley that it's kind of like the the last scene of Star Wars where the, the things flying down the, the, the tunnel and sliding back and forth and then you then you land. It's it's a pretty exciting thing right in. And um and and so there's I it's it's not one of those, hey, let's go figure out a way to do Bhutan on the cheap. If you're going to go, it's going to cost money, and that's just the way it is. Well, Michael Jurgens, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's been great talking to you about your company, the Bhutan Wine Company, and thanks for adding another country to my bucket list. Bhutan sounds beautiful, sounds gorgeous, and we're going to look forward to keeping up with you and finding out how your vineyard and your winery progresses as uh, the months and years go by here. Brent, thanks so much for having me on a guest. Uh, I would say if, if you're at all interested, you can follow our progress um, on Instagram at Bhutan Wine. We, we post pictures of all the, the vineyards as they come up um, and, and there's some pretty neat stuff there. So appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and, and would love it. If you if you ever want to go, let me know. I can I can clear out a lot of the paperwork for you and, and get you the VIP kind of tour. Uh, beautiful. Thanks. All right. Cheers, my friend. Okay, there you go. I think Michael is turning into a great ambassador for the kingdom of Bhutan. Get links to the Bhutan Wine Company and Mike's book in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED150. Well, that's a wrap for this week. Next week, we're talking with Grammy-winning singer and songwriter Sarah Jarose. Turns out Sarah loves good food and making Negronis, so... We get on famously, of course. Until then, get yourself over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a new story about how Portugal needs to upgrade their high-speed train system. Not that it's bad. In fact, it's light years ahead of what we have in the U.S., but to get up to speed with France and Spain and the rest of Europe, not to mention Asia, they've got some work to do. That's at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. And if you like this show, share it on your social media. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Ara Chugging Champ Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.